Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. Welcome to A Different Kind of Walk, and I am uh, glad to introduce you today to a new and good friend, Ken Proctor, who uh, was on the Camino with uh, me and all of us, and um, he and Donna and Molly surprised me yesterday, so remember, we always record these in advance, but... um, uh, I mean, I just lit up when I found out that they were uh, in worship yesterday. I spoke at my former church uh, about my Camino experience and to have them there and to get to use them as a object lesson by making them come stand in front of the church. Did I embarrass you during that or was that okay standing up there for a while? Yeah, no, that's that's not in my comfort zone. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> So Molly kept turning around, look at me, and I kept telling her, no, look at the people, because I'm trying to talk about you. So yeah, I'm sorry I threw you out of that comfort zone, because I would never, never want to do that to you, because um, you're very special to me. So um, so tell us a little bit about your life. So I grew up in upstate New York, um, outside of Rochester. I believe our house was probably no more than two, two and a half miles from Lake Ontario. So we were up there. Um, so did you learn how to shovel snow by the age of three? Uh, there was a lot of shoveling, but my, uh, my father had a snowblower. So as soon as <laughs> I was old, to be, old enough to be able to use that, uh, <laughs> as soon as I was done with my paper route in the morning, then my next job was to snowblow the driveway. But uh, yeah, we're currently in Maryland since 2000. Uh, I'm an architect. My wife, Emily, owns an interior design firm. We have two kids and two dogs. I'm not sure which are better behaved, uh, but... Uh, Uh, I had lunch with your children yesterday, and they are very well behaved and wonderful. For almost the entire time they were on their best behavior although uh mary did burp out loud during lunch which caught me off guard yeah that was pretty mild <laughs> immediately realized what had come out of her mouth and her eyes locked with mine and i was just like okay i i won't say anything compared to some of the things that come out of your mouth but we'll keep moving on tell us more about yourself i'm a thousand miles from I'm a thousand miles from nowhere, and there's no place I'd rather be. Part of your story is dealing with anxiety, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, what anxiety has looked like for you, if you've always had anxiety, those sorts of things. And is it just social anxiety, or is it work and stress, things like that? Well, um, I learned that he doesn't like to be shoved up in front of a congregation and stand there for five minutes. I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> it's just like posing for a picture. I don't know. Like, what are you supposed to do with these things when you're up there? 
They obviously move around, but um, I believe, as now a 44-year-old, that I have probably suffered from anxiety my whole life. I think that as a kid, the ways that you get away with dealing with it work for being a kid, you know? And I think um, I didn't let it control me. I think when my anxiety was really, really bad, a lot of it was things that I couldn't control that were really the hardest. And I think as a kid, I dealt with it by coming up with dumb, crazy stuff to do that I could control, that I could, you know, climb a way too tall of a tree, ski off a cliff in British Columbia. I mean, um, I have come to understand my anxiety and also come to understand and sort of forgive those who don't have anxiety because they will never understand it as much as they try. Um, even loved ones. Um, but my birthday is on September 11th on September 11th. My dad was flying from somewhere to somewhere on the East coast. Um, I was sitting at my desk. My wife called to say a plane flew into the first tower. In my head, I'm thinking just like a little, you know, Cessna or some little thing. And it really didn't click to me whatsoever. Uh, And then I had a meeting shortly afterwards in a county office building. And the meeting was interrupted by somebody coming in with a small black and white TV uh, showing the footage of the second plane hitting the tower and alarms going off in the building that we all had to leave the building. Um, and me realizing that my dad had since become stranded in BWI and I knew all the tunnels and bridges were going to be closed and there was no way that I was going to be able to get down to him. So it was just get a rental car, drive North, you know, uh, get, get out of Baltimore, get around Baltimore. That was the moment that my anxiety went from manageable to detrimental to my life there's so many things that you can convince yourself that are okay like not driving through the tunnel and taking a 25 minute longer trip or you know avoiding the delaware memorial bridge and going on a bridge up by philly instead um you know and then you start to not even be able to, or you start to justify things that don't even make sense. At one time I used an analogy that like, okay, there's some people that are afraid of snakes, you know, certainly justifiable. I'm, I have no issue with them, but someone with an anxiety, you might be able to tell them, Hey, I already checked your boots. There's no snakes in there. That's not going to help the person with anxiety. You know, and Em and I, we got married. Um, some of the best advice my parents ever gave us was just be Ken and M for five years. Just be Ken and M. Don't have responsibility. You know, don't whatever. Just, you know, because you're never going to get that time back. And so that was our plan. It was, you know, let's have five years of us and then we'll start a family. And as that clock was ticking, 
and I, I really do genuinely think it was an unfair ultimatum to make on a person because she also didn't really understand what anxiety was, but it ended up being probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, said that we're not bringing kids into this household until you get your anxiety under control. So I taught, I spoke with someone two days a week for a long, long time. I was developing skills to help me cope in a myriad of small ways, but it really didn't change the big ones, which was very obvious to my family. My mom wanted so hard to understand anxiety, probably tried harder than anybody else. And uh, that meant a ton, but you just can't explain anxiety. So I, I started taking um, some medicine and I used to be so ashamed of this and I fought it for so long. My, my doctor, he said to me, and I've said this so many times since then, I, my paraphrasing is probably going to be way off the original, but it's the message. But clean, right? Yes. Yes. He <laughs> said, um, he said, why do you take cholesterol medicine? I said, well, cause I have genetic high cholesterol. And he goes, but why? And I was like, because there's an imbalance in my liver and blah, blah, blah. Cholesterol sticks around and doesn't get absorbed and then ends up in, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he goes, yeah, but it makes your life better, right? I go, well, it's certainly going to make it longer. He goes, well, that makes it better, right? Yeah. And he goes, well, why do you have anxiety? And I looked at him and I was like, because the serotonin doesn't go from one synapse to another and it turns around and goes back. And, and he goes, so if there's a medicine that can make your life better, why wouldn't you take it? And I looked at him and I will make this clean by not saying what I said to him, but, <laughs> and so I did it and it changed my life. And it doesn't mean anxiety has gone. And it doesn't mean that I have to, I don't have to, you know, still use some of those tools, but it does mean that I am happier, healthier. I don't have to justify stupid things. Uh, so we met on the Camino, but um, uh, you started the Camino before us, uh, which that thrilled me because there were parts of the Camino that I missed after walking the whole thing in 17. But um, when did you first start thinking about the Camino and actually walking? Uh, that's I've been obsessed with the Camino for a long time. Um, I don't know if it was the very first, but one of the very first times I was introduced to the Camino, my little brother and his best friend had thought it might be a good sort of bachelor party kind of thing before he got married. Um, so was his idea to walk the entire 500 miles for his bachelor party or just part of it? I think it would have just been the three of us. Uh, and I don't, think it ever really got to the point where we discussed if we were starting in St. John. Okay. If it was just a sort of, Hey, this might be cool. Right. Uh, but that had to have been 15, 20 years ago, but I have been just obsessed with it for the longest time. Why do you think you were obsessed with it? What was it in your gut that was like, wow, there's something to this. Well, I don't think that I was, at a place in my life where it would have had as much religious significance 
And I'm not even sure I was at a place in my life where I was as into being healthy and exercising as I have been since then. I think the idea of the challenge. That was the first seed that was planted. Yeah. I, I think that's always been something that drives me is challenging myself. Certainly in the last maybe 12 years, that has been more on physical nature um uh, you know there was a drive to lose weight and then that turned into a drive to get healthier and that led me to racing running races triathlons and it was always what's the next challenge what's the next challenge Um, okay so uh, my cousin brian uh had cerebral palsy um he was if memory serves either 13 or 18 months younger than me um brian was never verbal never uh could walk but he was just my cousin you know it was just that was who brian was you know you know we probably only saw them every other year maybe for christmas maybe we did a lot of family vacations um uh yellowstone uh I believe the Tetons and Estes Park, um, they're, they live in Cheyenne. So Brian uh, had more surgeries than any 10 human beings should ever have. Um, he had a life expectancy of four. Uh, Brian passed away when he was 26 years old. Um, mm-hmm. He could light up the room with a smile and make you laugh with his laugh, and he could chase you out of the room with a look uh and it was i am so i count my blessings that my wife was able to meet him um Uh, and know that part of me i i wish that my children had been able to meet brian but um that was not to be so i mentioned you know sort of my weight loss transitioning into running and triathlons and trail races and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I started seeing this group called uh, the ASA um, out on the race course, it stands for Athletes Serving Athletes. Uh, it's local here to Baltimore, and now it's most of the state, even into York County, Pennsylvania. Um, and as I was moving to longer and longer races, I would see them more and more often uh, start to get enough wind in me that I could cheer as I went by (laughs) and then started recognizing names. And I believe it was the Charles street 12 and I believe it was team Braxton. At least that's what my memory uh, says that I ran by and I was like, why the F aren't I doing this? Yes. Um, Yeah. Can you explain what ASA is? Is it people pushing other people in wheelchairs or what exactly is that? Mostly up to the age of 18, although I think there are certainly exceptions to that. Um, The athletes are in wheelchairs uh, with, could have a a wide range of developmental or or physical um, disabilities. Um, But we, the wingmen, would push them in road races and triathlons. But it was started by a man named David Slumkowski, and um, he started doing it on his own and doing 
triathlons and up to Ironman, I believe. Uh, amazing human being, but this organization was spawned from that. Now, I was never a part of a triathlon team. I was a part of a biking team once, and I was not on a cycle, and I was driving the uh, support van. Um, and after I had found my way to Justin and Patrick um, and seen their movie and read their book, uh, a woman who was coincidentally on that bike ride that I was not riding in, um, she and her husband, Mark, uh, Christine and Mark went on um, Justin and Patrick's first trip in, I'm going to get this wrong. It was somewhere between 17 and 18. Is that right, Jeff? Do you know? I would guess. Yeah. Um, and that's when the lights clicked. I was like, this is it. This is what I have to do. I see these smiles and I was like, man, if I, if I could have been able to do that for my cousin, um, I would have been in it, it, ecstatic. Uh, my obsession with the Camino joined my obsession with helping people who couldn't necessarily otherwise do athletic things like this on their own. Um, and so I was so excited. So where, where did you actually start again? Why don't you tell folks? Because you were 10 days ahead of us, I think, correct? Yeah. Um, I started in Robinal del Camino. And it was horrible to get there after being awake for 26 hours, not having eaten for about 13. Mm. I, yeah, I was wondering, how did you get there? So, I mean, you flew where? To Madrid? Through Madrid to Santiago. Okay. It was easier to get a, um, a round trip out of Santiago. Okay. But so I had a car take me the 250 kilometers up to Robinaw. Um, the first 200 got me to Pond de Fer. And then from there, it was straight up mountain roads that looked like somebody was scribbling on a map. <laughs> I get car sick. Oh. And the the car smelled like cigarette smoke. And I kept going, Mas Frio, Mas Frio, trying to get him to turn the AC down. So going up the mountains, I started seeing towns that I knew I was going to walk through. I started seeing towns that I knew I was going to um, be staying at as I'm feeling sicker and sicker and i'm starting to lose the cognitive ability to figure out how far away we are from robin all because of the sleep deprivation i haven't eaten i am just trying not to throw up in this man's vehicle <laughs> um so i started asking you know how how much further how much further and he would tell me and we got five kilometers away from robin all and i had to have a pull over uh, and I ran back about 20 yards. I was like, I, this man does not, I didn't even know what, if there was anything in me, but I knew whatever was in me had to come out. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then I walked back to the car and for the last five kilometers, I felt fantastic. 
I should have just done that much earlier. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, Robin Hall. And I planned it because I wanted to hit the cruise to Pharaoh on my first, my first morning, my first day. Oh, okay. And the cruise to Pharaoh is for everybody? It is an ancient uh, iron cross that has been on the top of this mountain since, I believe, the Middle Ages. And at some point, it got mounted to a very large wooden pole. And um, uh, I think the pole probably used to look a lot shorter or a lot taller than it does now because people place... I guess, offerings, if you will. Um, a lot of times it's in the form of a rock or a pebble to symbolically leave something behind as they move towards Santiago. For me, it was very much the spiritual start of my Camino. And what I left behind, what I hoped to leave behind was, you know, maybe the baggage that had been holding me back from being a better dad, a better husband, you know, maybe a better son or sibling. Um, and I had a rock that I, uh, a, a small rock that I had planned on bringing. I had had it for a month or so. Um, and I wanted to get it blessed before I left. I'm grateful that um, the Saturday before I left, I went to church and I said probably the most meaningful confession reconciliation that I've had in maybe decades. Um, but 15 minutes before I left, my son came up to me. He knew I was going to get the stone blessed. And he had a stone from his room. I don't know where it came from, but he wanted me to take that and leave that at the cross. So it was sort of a last minute audible. Uh, I gave him my stone and I took the one he gave me uh the only bad part about it is i loved having it with me for that short time and then i had to leave <laughs> had to leave it in spain on my first morning <laughs> walking so were you a knucklehead like justin and patrick and get up before way before dawn and try to be at the cross at sunset or sunrise uh no Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'd never heard that till I saw uh, their movie. Uh, it was like, oh, I didn't think anything of that. It was, it was the middle of the day when I was there. So I was definitely there in the morning. Uh, I always got up. I tried to be on the trail by seven. But remember, I had not slept. By the time I went to bed that night, I hadn't slept in nearly 30 hours. So oh, yeah. I was not about to try to wake up. Right. Yeah. I have kind of a random question that I've never asked you, Jeff. Um, how hot did it get at the hottest part of the day? Um, just for reference, like what was the temperature difference between like sunrise and the dark um, and like the heat of the day? In my experience, the coldest mornings were in the upper 40s. Okay. Um, Fahrenheit. Yeah. 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 Um, the hottest days, close to 90, maybe. Um, it was almost more about the sun than it was the heat. Yeah. 
in some places there's no shade to be had. Uh, I don't know what time of year did you go? Yeah, so I went July and it was freezing sideways rain through the Pyrenees. And the Meseta, I would agree with you. I, I wouldn't say that it was over 100 degrees, but because the trees were so few and far between, and we're both fair-skinned guys. It's true. That, I mean, it was, yeah. No, that's hot. It I was had hot. a buddy um, that I met in the first half of my Camino two friends, one um, named uh, Henry, originally from the Dominican Republic, and one named Louis from Quebec City. And they said on the Meseta, they ran out of water. And uh, not only is there a description of the Meseta that it seems to go on forever, even when you're 200 yards away from its end, you don't know it's there until you actually get off of it right they had they flagged down an ambulance uh i i had one moment that was way too long without liquid in the meseta um uh and learned my lesson after that but yeah yeah it was tough so tell us a little bit more about your 10 days before you joined all of us so I walked for six days and then I took a day off, but yeah, the trail, oh man, I, I, I don't walk with anybody or I, I didn't until I met up with the group. Um, so each day was filled with me physically challenging myself, but man, I stopped at every church and went in and said a prayer or two. Um, I took pictures of flowers and dogs and cats, even though I don't really like cats. Um, and just, it was amazing. Uh, the community that I had in the evening versus the, just the alone time during the day in arguably one of the most beautiful places on the planet, I would meet up with some like-minded people in the evenings after I'd showered and, you know, whether it was two or as many as six that, you know, that's a great thing. You know, you spoke yesterday about community um, to your former congregation, which I haven't brought up, but uh, do they know that you're a recent uh, Catholic convert? <laughs> Keep and it I, a secret. Keep it a secret. I did notice you crossing yourself up there. Uh, <laughs> and I don't, don't think that that slipped by me, uh, <laughs> but, um, the one issue I had is that I realized that I needed to slow down. My goal until my third or fourth day was just to get up Osobrero. It was an 18.8 mile day. It was 3,024 vertical feet of climb. So I think after Osobrero, it was, it was a constant battle to get convince myself to slow down. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I won't swear on your on your podcast, although it's really in my nature to, um, <laughs> but was just to slow the heck down 
How's that sound? There you go. Um, so the day that I was to meet up with the group, Emily texted me that she was concerned that I would not be able to transition from what I had done and experienced and the pace, just setting my own schedule and the community that I had just become part of and transitioning to somebody else's schedule, somebody else's pace, a whole new community. And Em was, was concerned that that might be an issue. It wasn't at all. So, yeah, I mean, that was my next question for you was uh, exactly what Emily was concerned about there. What was that transition like? So did you have a day? I did. I took a day. So I, you know, didn't have an alarm set. Not that I didn't wake up at six anyway. And uh, I did the rest of my laundry. I had actually done some the day before because I had time and got some supplies for my feet. Surprisingly, one of the, the friends I met from the first half, uh, I had just taken a shower and I was just about to lay down for a nap. And he texted me. He said, I'm three and a half kilometers outside of Saria. You will meet me for a beer, yes? <laughs> He's uh, from uh, Porto. And actually, he has now one of my two ASA hats that I walked with. Ah, a gentleman from the Dominican Republic who's currently in Chicago has the other. So uh, I went down and another friend from uh, Madrid showed up and he had a beer with us and then stayed for lunch. He was passing through Saria. And I knew the Camino went all the way up to the top of the hill, up those steps. And then right where it hits the monastery, Camino turns left. Now, on our Camino, we started after those steps. We, we went around them. Um, so I walked up the hill with him. I knew the monastery was opening up at 5 o'clock. So I just walked up the hill and, and hung out till it opened. And we said our goodbyes. So he went on the trail. I went to the monastery. Um, then came back down the hill for daily mass. One of the greatest parts of my Camino was the fact that I could come back, shower, do whatever, and then go daily mass, which I think I've been to daily mass once or twice in my entire life. Because um, mm. that's yeah. not really my style. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I had my day and then I was able to, um, you know, just sort of get to Lugo uh, right before you guys got there. So that transition worked out okay. What was that second half of the Camino like? for you with six people in wheelchairs, one person with eye issues and 30 some helpers. 29. Was I, did it 20? Math, I did the math for you yesterday. But oh, okay. You didn't hear me. You were telling me to turn around. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, uh, it was uh, amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Um, the the meeting of the helpers the rest of the helpers again the terminology here is different because cap the captains are in the chairs uh as as it should i've talked to my friend from the asa he goes that makes so much sense um because they're in charge it's their in some cases literally their life in our hands out there on the trail um so other than actually getting to meet Patrick and Justin, who I've been in touch with for at least three and a half years. Um, and actually 
you know, getting to shake their hand and get a hug. And Patrick gave me a kiss on the cheek when I met him for the first time in person. Um, but it was great. And I was ready for everything that was going to happen. I knew it wasn't going to be my schedule and I was going to have to deal with it. I knew that nothing, <laughs> nothing was going to be in my control from there, but you know, that's the way it goes. I mean, I'm a dad too. I mean, half the time I'm a taxi and don't know about it until 15 minutes before my wife says, I can't make it home for X, Y, Z. Like, Oh, well, I guess I have to figure out where I'm driving and when and who. Um, so yeah, the transition was a non-issue. Mm, that makes me happy for you. So, um, what happened spiritually over the whole trip for you? That's a hard question. I recognize that. That's a big question. It might not be one you've fully developed yet. I consider myself to be very spiritual. I mean, I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. Um, my Catholic faith means a lot to me. And uh, I, ha I have high anxiety. Um, but, you know, I think I was open to, I, I let myself open up to people from all over the world in the first half that I'm still talking to today. And then, you know, the group, and I thanked the group for allowing me to let myself open up because that's not, that's not me. There are days when I come home and I'm like, I'm just so you know, I'm anxious. You know, unfortunately, I think my kids have picked up on some of that. Uh, so I'm assuming it's partially genetic because I, I really think that it's managed quite well. But it's never going to go away. It's just like my cholesterol. Mm. It, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's not great, but you described it in one of the most beautiful ways I have heard it described. Uh, from cholesterol to anxiety and including the snake story. I, I really appreciate that. I have a, I have a six-year-old and she is currently, she currently has anxiety about bats in her room, which is my fault. I've found out because once a bat got in my room and I, whatever, I found this bat, apparently I didn't tell the story very well because in my mind at the time, like this was a really neat thing yes, and it was so cute and it was so tiny and it had gotten wedged between my dresser and the wall. And so I like scooched it out and it dropped into a trash can and I like petted its fuzzy little head. And then I put it out the window and it was this like adorable experience for me. Um, but I don't think I explained that right. And she has these horrible visions of enormous bats coming to suck her blood. And I have to check under the bed and, tell her that they can't squeeze through cracks in the window and all mm. things. I assume it will probably be temporary for her, but it's been a fun experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it sucks. We wish the best for our kids. Yep. And we can screw them up so easy. <laughs> I know. 
Yeah, I honestly feel like the best thing that I've been able to do for my kids, because there are so many things where I'm like, ew, you inherited that from me. I'm so sorry. Like, that's awful. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think I feel like the best thing I've been able to do is just just be open about it. Like, yeah, this is a way in which I'm broken or and or I'm working on it or I'm taking medication for it. And it's relatively normal. Lots of people have this, but it is difficult. It is hard. And if you experience it, that is both okay and also hard. And like, let's just keep talking about it. Talking is it. I mean, you know, whether it's with someone you love or a professional, you know, I, I don't know what, where my life would be had I not taken the steps that I did you know and like I said greatest thing that ever happened to me you know at the time an ultimatum like that was not helping my anxiety (laughs) um, but I know now that it was out of love it it was the kick in the butt that I needed Mm -hmm. Um, that you can't deal with kids that way though you know right yeah well uh, when Barrett was early grade school and Addison was, I mean, early middle school and Addison was late grade school, he said, I loved Addison more than I loved him. And I said, no, I don't. And he goes, yes, you do. You blah, blah, blah. And he'd give me examples. And I'd say, I don't love him more than I love you. Yes, you do. Because and he gave me more examples. So I finally became the best parent in the world. And I said, okay. You're right. I do love him more than I love you. And he said, what? I said, yeah, he's more fun. He's, he's better to hang out around. He's, he's just, I like him better. I love him more than I love you. You do not. I said, yeah, I really do. You do not. I'm like, that's right. I don't. And I don't ever want to hear it from you again. Uh. I don't know if I screwed him up by doing that. I do the same thing, though. Augie comes in, my son comes in, and he's like, it's not fair. Why does she get this? And it's like, well, because we like her more. (laughs) And he's like, no, you don't. Yeah. (laughs) One thing I hate more than the word hate is any iteration of it's not fair. I know. Oh, gosh. I will say, Jeff, before before we go, uh, Mary had soccer practice this morning. So uh, on the way back, we hadn't said anything for a while. And she goes, oh, tell Jeff if you need me to be a special guest on this podcast, I'm available. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. I love that. <laughs> you know, I, I and I want my kids and my family to know, to know my Camino because I think – Everyone's Camino, even if you walk next to them, is completely unique. Um, Like a tattoo, I imagine that as soon as you have it, it sticks with you forever and you immediately want to go get another one. But but I I don't know that they will fully understand as much as I try without meeting the people in our – here we go again, Jeff, what? community community um and uh from both halves of my of my experience they know that two of my favorite hats in the world are now on 
opposite sides of the world from me. Uh, now residing with people that I met um, on my first half. Right. And they know that since I've been home now two months, we've already created two opportunities to meet up with people. You know, you yesterday and Molly and Donna and I at uh, the Guinness Open Gate. And, you know, at some point I got to get out to see Patrick and Justin. At some point I got to get out to see Kathy and Toma, you know, yep. um, just like I wanted Mary to meet my cousin, just like I wanted them to come out to ASA races. And just like I even dragged my kids to a blood donation once. I think that them experiencing differences in people and opportunities to help people either with or without those differences is, again, one of the things that I really am trying to bring home from the Camino. Yep. Um, You're doing that well. You're doing that well. Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. Until next time, live well. Thank you.